0: Welcome to Give & Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give & Take. Choose your hours, fire your boss, control your financial future. The promise of the sharing economy is alluring. But as my guest, Alexandria Ravenel, argues in Hustling Gig, Struggling and Surviving in the Sharing Economy – Not only does the gig economy trample on generations of workplace protections concerning safety, discrimination, sexual harassment, and the right to unionize, it can also be legally perilous and downright dangerous. Ravenel offers up the personal stories of nearly 80 predominantly millennial workers from Airbnb, Uber, TaskRabbit, and other apps and examines what happens behind closed doors when the peer-to-peer component of the sharing economy means walking into the home or vehicle of a stranger cloaked in internet anonymity it's a great book and we had a great conversation about it i give you andrea ravenel Alexandria, welcome to the podcast
1: thank you for having me
0: it's great to have you on the podcast you've written a new book hustle and gig, struggling and surviving in the sharing economy. This comes out of your PhD work, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. My PhD in sociology at the CUNY Grad Center.
0: Now, were you a utilizer of the gig economy before you chose this research field? Were you taking Ubers, Lyfts uh, before you got involved in this as a research project?
1: I was. Actually, I was, uh, like all good grad students, selling items on eBay um, to pay for uh, monthly bills and then also selling clothes on TradeSea. And I actually had a small consulting business. So I was hiring workers through TaskRabbit and, of course, as a New Yorker, taking Uber and Lyft. So I was pretty well integrated as a user of the gig economy.
0: You had to do eBay well. You have to like the post office, right? You have to like like or you have to be comfortable with like, it. I always feel like I would... Be, my wife's dad was a postmaster. She, like, loves mail. I I, I feel like that's where I struggle on eBay is the, the intimidation of having to box, <laughs> ship everything, right? But you obviously had those skills in spades.
1: Uh, well, I lived on top of a post office, so that certainly helped. Um, wow. But, <laughs> yeah, a perk of New York City.
0: And so were you... Was your own sort of... You were a, I guess, in your own books terms, you talk about uh, successes, strivers, and strugglers, right? These are these three kinds of people, and then we can talk more about that in a minute. But, but were you like, were you up and coming? Were you doing okay? Were you obviously you're hiring people on TaskRabbit? It seems like you were doing okay on the side hustle kind of gig scene.
1: So yes, I, my full-time work was my consulting work and I was able to incorporate and hire workers. So, but I was not a success story in the gig economy. So a success story in the gig economy would be somebody who had multiple Airbnbs and their full-time work was simply gig
0: work. Are you, um, you like write about a guy, right? who is was, or, or fortune profile him that he made like. 250 grand a year because he was driving Uber and set up like a jewelry shop in the Uber car?
1: Right. That guy was an uberpreneur. Um, and he, Fortune profiles him. It seems like such a great success story. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that from his actual Uber driving, he's only making about $35,000 a year. And most of the money he's making is from the jewelry sales that he's sort of advertising the jewelry in the car, or he's actually outsourcing to other Uber drivers. And so the actual money he's making from drive sharing directly is actually fairly minimal, but that gets kind of lost or glossed over a lot of times in these conversations.
0: Yeah. So much of the gig economy, right? For, for example, Uber and Lyft, like it seems like so much of the like the of the of the compensation for the driver's hidden what 's hidden is like the the actual cost of doing it right like you know the gas and tolls and wear and tear in the car and so once you figure that stuff in it, and then you Kind of calculate your your earnings. It it gets kind of depressing.
1: It does, yeah. Many drivers think that they're making closer to sixty or seventy or maybe even eighty thousand a year, but when you do the math and you take out all those expenses, they're actually making much closer minimum wage. Uh, There was a piece of internal paperwork um, that was released from Uber where they viewed McDonald's as one of their great competitors for workers, because at the end of the day. And Uber drivers making roughly what a McDonald's worker would make, except the Mickey D's worker probably get free fries with that.
0: Yeah, which is a huge incentive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. They take, yeah, the sad thing is, McDonald's probably takes better care of their workers. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you are, so you just decide you're in graduate school, you're in sociology, you figure, hey, look, I'm immersed in this world. I mean, is it like Jane Goodall? I mean, you think, hey, I'm, I'm kind of like, what, like, why? Why did you choose to study the gig economy?
1: Great question. So, I um in 2015 TaskRabbit had a rather big pivot and they went from being a bidding marketplace to a more of like a temp agency. So, so a bidding I-
0: bidding market would be like, okay, I need somebody to do these uh, four chores, uh, I'll like, and I, I think I want to do it. And here's how much I'll do it for as opposed to like a temp thing where like, you got to be available for a block of time, right? Like, or, or you, so you're much more like a traditional employee.
1: Exactly. Yes. Um, and with the bidding, people could put in little spiels about why they should be hired. So I had hired someone through the bidding marketplace, and then they had the pivot. And all of a sudden, the person who showed up at my house was not the person who I had originally hired. And I was a little surprised. And so I started asking this person questions and it turned out they had attended a very prestigious university and had actually majored in sociology. So I was like, oh, this is perfect, one of my people. Um, And then we, uh, he was great. Um, This is Jamal in the book and I hired him for a number more tasks. And then we became friends. And he started telling me about what TaskRabbit was like. And he told me about being hired for a task that he thought was just go to a pharmacy and pick up someone's prescription. And then after he picks up the prescription, the woman informs him that she had actually moved to China and she needs him to mail a large bottle of amphetamines to her in China.
0: Wow. Wow. That sounds yes. like, that, yeah. That's that, <laughs> this is where like the bells and whistles and alarms and spidey sense starts tingling, right? Because that sounds slightly shady.
1: It is super shady. It is illegal to mail prescription drugs uh, across international borders. Um, amphetamines are a controlled substance, so it's difficult to get that prescription to begin with, and it's a huge bottle. He shows me a photo of it, and it's like the biggest bottle of pills I've ever seen outside of like a multivitamin um and he calls Taskrabbit and tells them you know hey I'm being asked to do this and the Taskrabbit representative gets off the phone says I'm going to call you back and calls him back so that the call's not recorded and tells him well you know this kind of violates the terms of service but the Taskrabbit does what the client asks and you should go and mail these drugs.
0: Well, what if somebody calls you a task driver, hey, I've got uh, something in my trunk. I need you to get rid of. And there's a body. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I mean the ta- I mean, what do you like? <laughs> that sounds like a terrible terms of service.
1: It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um so he he has no idea what to do. He decides that this is not going to be a good plan for him in the long run in terms of his future and his career. Um, so he decides to ignore the advice from Rabbit, and for a week just carries this huge bottle of pills around in his backpack, um, waiting for the woman to get in touch and tell him what to do, uh, waiting for the client to get in touch. And eventually she does uh, get back in touch and say, oh, you're going to meet so-and-so in a park. Oh, so now- <laughs>
0: okay.
1: So now he's handing off this pile of pills in a public park here in New York City, which is also just a really uh troubling image
0: yeah, I would think, and also if you have this massive pile of amphetamines that you don't have a prescription for i mean this this is just so like fraught with uh A lot of pitfalls here. I mean, that's awful.
1: Yeah. No, it absolutely is. Here in New York, we had ended um, the stop and frisk at that point, but they were still doing subway checks. And so he kind of lives in fear for this week that he will go into the subway and the police will ask to check his backpack and they'll find this huge bottle of pills that has some woman's name on it.
0: So you're kind of getting to know these stories and you think, wow, what a sociological opportunity here. There's this whole culture of people, a social network and reality that is not being extensively studied, I guess.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I had read a couple of sort of journalistic exposés, but when you're an academic, you look at those and sometimes you're like, well, maybe these are just the sensational stories. Maybe these are just the crazy stories. Um, but then when I started looking into it a lot more and I found there was such a divide between the what I call the entrepreneurial ethos—how these platforms market this as be your own boss, um, as create your own hours, pick your own salary—and then what the kind of lived reality was of the workers—I realized that you know this is more than just a couple of stories. There's a larger sort of trend going on here in terms of how workers are being exploited and taken advantage of.
0: Yeah, because you know you you hear you know I remember hearing on Freakonomics they had an interview with. An economist and talking about how Uber is like this dream for an economist because you can study trends in a way that are general hypothetical you can figure out what exactly like the market value of x is because you can look at all the algorithm you can look at like the results of how much when they up something how much will pay and for the econ- for the abstract economists it seems like oh wow this is great and the employer it does away with schedules and the employer like the employee and, and and the entrepreneur everybody's working together and it's a libertarian dream and you you actually say that like it's it's a move forward backward in many ways that it's that it kind of circumvents a lot of the progress we've made in the industrialized world around worker rights, collective bargaining and 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 kind of puts the worker at a disadvantage once again, you know, like it was in the early industrial age.
1: Exactly. Yes, I say that it is a movement forward to the past. That for all of the talk about disruption, what's really going on is that these are apps that are upending generations of workplace protections. Um, You know, these workers have fewer protections than their great-grandparents did. Um, As independent contractors, they don't have protections regarding workplace injuries. They're not protected against discrimination. They have uh, no redress in terms of getting suddenly deactivated, which is sort of app world code for fired. Um, They don't get any paid time off. They're responsible for all their own taxes and expenses, and they run the risk of workplace slowdowns. So if there aren't a whole lot of people that want to take an Uber and you're an Uber driver, well, that's your unpaid day off.
0: Yeah, and, and they do all this without the advantage of a traditional independent contractor, right? Like somebody that's actual, actually a sort of, sell, it's their own proprietor, actually has their own business or something that they're, they're treated, they have limited freedoms. And it's the, the deactivation thing is interesting. I mean, you, you say that you tell a story in the book, you say, you know, I ask people, you know, the minute somebody asks me about my research, I tell them and they're like, Oh, I love my Uber driver. I love it. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, Interesting. How often do you tell your boss what you really think about your job, right? And so there's this kind of – kind of, because there's this rating system, right, th- th- that if you kind of are, have a bad attitude or if your car is subpar or something and you get rated badly enough, you'll get deactivated and you can no longer work. So the, you, you, you have an incentive to kind of grin and bear the conditions that are less than favorable,
1: Exactly. Yes. And so, you know, you're not only rating that person, but you're also paying them and determining how much they're going to get paid because you can decide if you're going to tip them or not. And so, yeah, you're very much almost like a feudal lord. It's like during that Uber ride, they become your servant. And this actually leads to. I'm going to other... feel so
0: much powerful, more powerful than my <laughs> next Uber ride. Call oh. me lord, please. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, it's it's an uncomfortable reality. You know, they market this as sort of peer to peer work, but a lot of it is just the workers very much being subservient to whoever the client is. You know, there's um, one example that comes to mind where there's a uh, a woman who actually is an adjunct professor, and she gets hired uh, to drop off somebody's jeans. Yeah,
0: those seem like the two most oppressed groups. Uh the, the, the task grab and the adjunct, which is worse. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like who takes your advantage <laughs> of you more? The entrepreneur or the university.
1: <laughs> well, actually, she is she's so embarrassed by her task grab at work that she lies to friends and family about it. And she will tell them that she's temping instead of tasking because she feels that it's really just stigmatized and like just so bottom of the barrel. Um, but she has this one task where somebody hires her to get a pair of pants hemmed, and she puts the money. The woman gives her like twenty dollars to pay, and instead of putting the money in the her pocket like she's supposed to, she puts it in the bag of the jeans. And the woman slaps her hand and is like, "Don't do that." And this is the type of treatment that workers are regularly in- encountering.
0: Yeah, and it seems that that you you get drawn into it, right? Because a lot of people are looking for a- a- increased income especially as you have sort of stagnated wage growth growth for working class and middle class folks as opposed to at the upper echelon of the economy and is it, some of it that you can get in like you don't have to apply for a job traditionally. i mean there's a, i mean there is an application process of course to drive uber or task drive but it's not as arduous as much as another traditional sort of standard job might be and your hours are more flexible and so it seems like you're getting money quicker and and it kind of sells itself right with the appearance of freedom more freedom than a traditional kind of workplace opportunity on, on the future is that how they kind of reel you in
1: Yes, definitely. Marketing it as um, sort of money whenever you want. In fact, a number of services will let you cash out pretty regularly. I believe Uber now you can cash out a couple of times a day. So if you have a really lucrative ride in the morning, uh, you can cash out right after that and get your paycheck almost instantly. The record
0: ride, right, is from some like like Virginia to like Brooklyn. It was like $297 or something. You mentioned in the book, don't you like that? That's the record that you came across. Yeah.
1: Um, I think actually the record now is closer to about 700 and something dollars. Um, but yeah, there have been, uh, in terms of my workers, the largest one that somebody got was about 200 and something dollars. Cause they had, uh, was a surge period. There was traffic and there was also, I think a snowstorm going but, but
0: on. But they figured out right when they put gas tolls, everything else, they really made nine bucks an hour for that ride.
1: Exactly. Yes. Because they're also, when they have to return, you know, even these long rides where they think they're going to make a lot of money, on the way back, they're not going to be able to get a ride, and so that is something they have to kind of eat out of pocket.
0: Yeah, and you just have this term that in places like Task Rabbit or or just even in Uber, or Lyft, where you You have to take so many rides, you find out eventually where for fear of deactivation, you get what you call tethered where where all of a sudden the allure of i work whenever i want i 'll take a ride here ride there but actually no you you you, you the, that freedom is is an illusion and and you, you you have to do this a little while to figure that out right the algorithms the the big brother watching all the time where where this is not necessarily like always a an explicit policy it 's just sort of the nature of the beast and people that do it a little while figure out the cruel reality of this, right?
1: Exactly. Yes. Um, so a lot of times they'll have these specials where, oh, if you give a certain number of rides in a weekend or you give a certain number of rides in a week or in a month, you'll get an additional bonus. And that makes it harder for them to go to other platforms. And a lot of drivers and other workers report that as they start getting very close to accomplishing that bonus, it disappears or the rides disappear or the work disappears. And they find that they've just put in all this time and effort and it's gone, um, and also really keeps them stuck on one platform at a time because they become, yeah, tethered to it, so that they can try for this very elusive reward or bonus.
0: The other thing that I that I noticed in the book that really took me aback was sort of the the bathroom break issue, and I learned actually that the Waldorf Astoria has vanity mirrors in their bathroom, right? Because one woman said that this is a great, but she figures out like how to get in high class hotels to use their bathrooms and stuff. Because if you, you, I mean, you mentioned that some people, right, actually try to get like gym memberships in places with multiple locations so they can use bathrooms in between gigs. But then somebody might say, why were you at the gym when you were supposed to be doing your, your gigs? And and so there's all these like basic labor issues that, that we take for granted these some some of these protections go away on on these kinds of side gigs
1: Exactly. Yes. And this is more of that sort of return to the past. So in the past, it was considered that going to the bathroom was something workers should do on their own time. And so um, there's actually a activist who would go to shop girls and would actually bring them to her home during the workday so that they could access a bathroom. And now what we see with these gig workers is because their workplace is often mobile, if they are running errands or if they're a driver, it's very difficult for them to access bathrooms. You know, people often think, oh, well, you can just go to McDonald's and use the bathroom there. But a lot of the fast food restaurants and coffee shops now require keys to get in, and they won't give the key to someone who's not a customer. And so a lot of times workers end up having to either buy something, which gets very expensive, or they turn to these options like gyms or going to hotels. And those options uh, only work if they have the type of flexibility that allows them to do that. So in terms of an Uber driver, you need to get close to one of those New York sports clubs or a TaskRabbit. You need to make sure you're not too scruffy in order to be able to kind of sneak into the hotel and access those very nice bathrooms at the Waldorf.
0: Forget the McDonald's bathroom, get a job application. (laughs) (laughs) You're better off right yeah
1: exactly and some french fries
0: <laughs> i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning after your evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin. David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Kress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butrin, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Like in many sectors of the economy, it it seems like the – you point out in the book that that the side gig or the hustle economy is different for the skilled person or the person with some capital – Like if you're an Airbnb, I mean, you tell the story of these guys that make a killing, Mm -hmm. but they have to be kind of shady about it because they're technically not supposed to rent (laughs) these. They're not supposed to basically buy property to do full time Airbnb. It's meant to be like, hey, I'm renting my I'm going away for the weekend. So if somebody needs a place to stay, here it is. But these guys have turned it into a, a high end Kind of entrepreneurial business, but but it takes so much money on the front end. I mean, just to actually get it, get an apartment, prep it, get contractors in, make it so it's a nice place. So so that, or is it the chef one? Uh, Was it kitchen um, kitchen kitchen surfing the 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 chefs people with these higher skills seem to do a little better. uh, You know, although still the success stories are, are the, are probably the exception, not the norm, but those people have a different experience in the gig economy than, than people that are doing task rabbit and lift and stuff like that very often. Right.
1: Exactly. Yes. So in the gig economy, it's just like the mainstream economy where if you come in with high levels of skill or capital, you are going to have a much easier time making a lot of money. So for Airbnb, um, Sort of hoteliers individuals who have twenty or thirty thousand dollars, they can go and rent an apartment, outfit it. Do the professional photographs, stage it really nice, hire even a worker to sort of do the key drop off and hire the clean, cleaning crew, and they can make a killing. You know, I talked to one guy who was able to make about $75,000 a year on top of his income as a corporate attorney, um, mon- sort of managing multiple Airbnbs. But it's not something that's available for most people. And here in New York, Taking an apartment and turning it into a full time hotel like this is actually illegal, so they 're not just they 're success stories, but they 're they 're very sketchy success stories
0: yeah it 's interesting because that corporate attorney prize enough disposable income that he can subcontract all the ta- all the tasks out so it 's just putting out money to make more money i mean like, again it 's like being a hedge fund manager or something where you have a bunch of money <laughs> yeah. and you make money begets money right.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and in fact, the corporate attorney actually turns it into a family business, um, and hires his mother-in-law, our future mother-in-law, who is an undocumented immigrant, to do the day-to-day management.
0: Wow. Now this is this is this is the stuff of uh, of documentary work. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Now you again, you talk about these three groups. There's the success stories, which are often sensationalized. But these, this this would be the this corporate attorney or something. These are people that are making money hand over fist. There are the strivers. These are people that are probably getting along okay and need some supplemental income. And this works as supplemental income. And then there's the big group of strugglers that really are just treading water and often are kind of – they are probably were deceived a little bit going to the front end. And they're not getting ahead doing this kind of work, right?
1: Right. No, they're not getting ahead. They're falling more and more apart. Um, One of the opening stories I have is of Sarah, who was a young woman who uh, left college to actually go into sort of TV production. And then she turns to TaskRabbit and she thinks she's okay for a little while there. She thinks she's actually becoming sort of a striver until the pivot. And all of a sudden she can't get any work. Um, She's gone from being able to take the first vacation of her life to not knowing if she's going to be able to pay her rent the next month. And she talks about wondering if she's going to end up sleeping on a park bench somewhere because she's not able to make a a decent amount of money. And so when she does get any possible tasks, she accepts them. So she finds herself cleaning what she thinks is like a crack house because there's just dirt everywhere and it's a disaster and she's really uncomfortable. But yeah, you have these really just very depressing stories of workers who believed and hoped and were optimistic. And then the reality comes crashing down for them.
0: So the subtext of your book is kids stay in school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but there are actually a surprising number of individuals who are in the gig economy, who have college degrees and graduate degrees and even PhDs.
0: Yeah, it's, again, it's the, uh, it's the adjunct it's, – it's, it's, it, this is fascinating. The adjunct professor, uh, which is one of the most exploitative uh, – you know, there's so much written about that. McDonald's and Uber. I mean, these are no, – no one thinks that these things are all at the same tier on some level. Once again, McDonald's might give you the best benefits of the three.
1: <laughs> it, you know, it, it absolutely will because at least if you work at McDonald's and you get injured on the job, you're covered under workers' comp. But meanwhile, kitchen surfing chefs who got injured in someone's kitchen—they have no redress whatsoever. Any type of sort of medical treatment that they need as a result, they have to pay for themselves.
0: So this is the genius model, right? For of the model for the I say genius, you know, in the sense of. Uh, evil, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I didn't want to be that value laden, but uh, well, you know, evil might be something appropriate. But this is the 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 incentive, right? You you when you find start a company like Uber or something, that you you push a lot of the traditional costs of running a business like that, like a taxi cab business, you you push those those costs to the workers, you know, or to, or or to the I I guess a a combination of pushing it off to the workers and the consumer, right? So that you're, you're, you're at lower and lower risk or you're on the hook for less and less money and skin in the game on the front end. So you can take that back in profit.
1: Exactly. Yes. So, most of the expenses are on the workers themselves so they have of course their daily expenses gas transportation but also all of their health care um the slow periods that i've mentioned before and even if you just simply decide to close suddenly that's a risk where the workers are the ones that really end up losing out you know kitchen surfing closed rather suddenly and all these workers had been told that they could have their own catering business through the site. And then when it closed, they lost their back office. They lost who was going to handle all their marketing. They lost the uh, invoicing. And they're just kind of stuck.
0: I mean, that can happen in any sector of the economy. But is it? do you think it? it's more sudden because... As the as the contractor, you don't really have a sense for how the business is going. I mean, if you're if you're working in a business and things are slowing down, you can kind of see, hey, there's not a lot of customers coming through the door. Maybe I need to But you, it's hard to see how the health of a of an entrepreneurial startup like that, right? Because mainly you have an access to an app or something.
1: Exactly. So you're right. It's hard to sort of understand and see it kind of coming down the road. But it's also that the workers have, in many cases, invested in this. So for kitchen surfing, a lot of workers went and paid for catering supplies so that they could do this dinner for 75 people. Um, they gave up full-time jobs. And then you also see that because of the setup of the independent contractor, a lot of times they don't necessarily qualify for unemployment insurance. Meanwhile, if you're full-time job and the mainstream economy goes under oftentimes there's at least a little bit of a social safety net for you
0: so i mean is it, do you still take ubers um
1: i try not to really no, that's <laughs> you, that, a to. conscientious
0: decision right so what do you do instead do you traditional taxi cab or public transit or drive yeah
1: uh, I take public transportation or I try to take actually a yellow cab in New York. Um, you know, the yellow cabs have also very much been affected by the rise of Uber and Lyft and via in New York. Uh, you've probably heard about the suicides over the drivers that have found themselves in high levels of debt from purchasing or, um, yeah, from purchasing medallions. And so I'd rather support those. And also, you know, you can stand on a street corner in New York city and watch people hailing, you know, they're standing there, they're waiting for their Uber or Lyft. And in the meantime, there'll be two or three yellow cabs that go by that are available. So there are ways to get from one place to another. And I think a lot of times if people took a cab, they'd probably get there faster.
0: Do you see this, the kind of, with something like Uber or Lyft or TaskRabbit, I mean, do you see this as sort of like, you think of like digital assistance and stuff in other countries, right? Where, you can get somebody to work for like seven bucks an hour, or six bucks an hour, that, that, that because they're in a developing economy, like that's a leg up, you know, as opposed to here, you know, somebody wouldn't do that here. But it's almost like that process is happening domestically. So you kind of figure out a way to get a worker to work for less than what they would normally work for in an advanced industrialized economy, right? Without the protections. I mean, from the perspective of the entrepreneur, that's like, uh, 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 that's right. I mean, wow, I didn't even have to leave the country to do this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So uh, part of this is that because we've seen wages stagnate, you know, workers are looking for ways to supplement their salaries. We're finally back to incomes being roughly where they were when the Great Recession started. But for a lot of workers, it doesn't feel like they're moving forward. And so, If you need a way to supplement your salary, something that markets itself as flexible and able to fit into your schedule becomes very appealing. And then these services also uh, rely a lot on gamification. So Uber is probably the biggest offender on this, where they'll have little rewards that pop up and badges in order to encourage a driver to keep working or to send them to an area of town that might not be as lucrative for the driver, but where Uber needs people to be at that time. And so, yeah, it becomes very much like we've taken this sort of unprotected world of work and just made it much more mainstream. And we've tried to make it more, or the platforms at least, have tried to make this more acceptable. You know, it's considered desirable now to work multiple jobs, as opposed to 10 years ago, we were all talking about the four-hour work week.
0: You think Karl Marx is rolling over in his grave saying, see, I told you this is where you were going. (laughs) I I mean like wow new ways to exploit the worker.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um <laughs> I absolutely yeah, I I think Marx would even be impressed. Um because it's yeah, the the exploitation. I'm
0: But covered in ideology, right? You, you again the, the gig, the hustle, I'm hustling up. So you so you, you valorize the hustler even if it's financially against their interests the way they're doing it but you kind of you right for gamification and, and just the ideology works pretty well
1: oh it absolutely does i mean we this is this is the protestant work ethic the united states is founded on and here we are just fetishizing it you know what makes you successful now is to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and work on one of your side hustles and then work your full day and then work your second hi- side sa- Second side hustle. And this is just, yeah, there's a loss of leisure time. Um, there's a loss of people just having time away from work. And, you know, we talk a lot about how unions brought us the 40 hour work week. But for a long time, industry was actually behind this also because the research shows pretty clearly that after you work 40 hours a week, there's less of a return on investment there. And so what we end up with is just a a whole generation of very overworked side hustling workers.
0: So, do you, I mean? Do you? It seems like the 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 tide and the momentum behind this kind these kind of developments, though, is just almost unstoppable right now. Because this is, you know, the, the more we get technological advances, right, and the the, the capacity, people seem to love it. I mean, I, I just you know, you, you think of like places that you couldn't get a cab, right? And, and mm-hmm. let's say you live in a metro area. In suburban Philadelphia or suburban New York it would be tough to get a cab. You can get an Uber instantly. I mean, these things. You know, the 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 the, the allure for the consumer, right? Seems to seems to guarantee that the the driver the, the, or people or let's say you're going out uh, drinking with your buddies or your girlfriends. Whereas, you know, now you can be like, okay, we'll just take an Uber. We don't have to worry about uh getting behind the wheel, you know, whereas, again, an area maybe where cabs were not as prevalent. There's so much incentive for this kind of, kind of stuff, right? That it seems like its rise is almost inevitable.
1: Right. Um, yeah, we probably should have seen technology being embraced by taxi companies. Um, and taxi industry was probably an industry that needed some technological advancement. Um, but the the sort of downside of this, especially if you're going to places that are outside New York, is that there are even fewer protections there for the workers and for their passengers. So at least here in New York, uh, drivers have the same insurance requirements as taxi cab drivers and the same level of training. And meanwhile, you can go to some of these other places and it's exceptionally easy to become a rideshare driver and you don't necessarily have the same type of experience.
0: You also talk about in your book about this sort of Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft distinction, right? The Gemeinschaft is this kind of commute, this more human community. There's a lot of I thou interaction, not necessarily Mm -hmm. I it interaction where, where people feel more human, right? And and the gazelle chef, right, is this more the, the cold urban, you know, what Max Weber called the iron cage of modernity, right, where everything feels more I it, but you know, people feel more like objects than subjects. And you talk about how the gig economy kind of offers the promise of more um, gamine chef, and really, it's a it's a lot of the people you interviewed felt like it's more a, a more intense form of gazelle shaft. I mean, like you're more isolated. <laughs> you feel more instrumentalized. You feel more alienated from labor. Like it, 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 it creates like the what uh, the gazelle shaft kind of dynamic on steroids.
1: Exactly. Yes. And there's also an irony to it because, you know, in the gig economy, oh, you're hiring a real person to drive you from A to B. But that taxi cab driver was also a real human being who you were hiring in the past. Um, And especially because a lot of it now can be done without workers necessarily interacting with the client. Yeah, it becomes very distant. People talk about being hired to clean a house. They go in, they clean the house, they disappear. They never see the person. And there's less of this sort of friendship and long long sense of community. And also because the workers become so very expendable. You know, there was uh, one CEO who was talking about the gig economy and how it was great. You could hire 10,000 people for 15 minutes and then they just disappear. But in reality, people don't disappear outside of, um, yeah, they just don't disappear.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I was talking with a friend who is a political scientist and does a lot of writing and speaking about global political economic issues. He was talking about the French economy and how it's – because there's so many protections, people are kind of – it's almost reticent to do hiring because it's hard to get rid of somebody, right? And so you have to be very, very cautious about who you hire. So maybe that's one extreme. The other extreme – and so people that caught in there are like, oh, we'd like some more freedom. To you know, to be entrepreneurial, but it's this is kind of the other extreme, right? Where, where it's it, where it becomes so disadvantaged in favor of the hirer, right? Where, where it's where the person who creates these the labor opportunities has so much of, of an advantage over the the gig worker, or, whereas it's pr- proposed like this partnership. The, the in in reality, it seems from your research, it's radically asymmetrical.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a massive information asymmetry between the client and with the worker. So workers often talk about getting hired for tasks where they're told it's one thing and they show up and it ends up being something totally different. And then there's also a and a perfect example is often with like cleaning tasks. Well, someone say, oh, come clean my house. And then the worker shows up and it turns out, oh, you want me cleaning up plaster dust or you want me using... This really exotic like contractor chemical um, clean out or- my
0: asbestos <laughs> yeah
1: exactly i mean, it's funny but um so jamal the young guy who got hired for the uh, amphetamines prescription pickup he actually gets hired to clean a pond yeah you have and- a picture
0: of this in the book and it, it, it it's 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 gross
1: It is out. He says he still has nightmares about it. So he goes to clean out the pond. The guy has no supplies for him. And so he has to take off his shoes and socks, roll up his pants and jump into the pond and clean it out with his hands. And normally if you're going to clean out a little fish pond, you would have like waders, you would have specialized tools. You'd have like the little suction vacuum. But yeah, and he doesn't feel like he has any choice on this because he committed to doing this he spent plenty of time negotiating or at least talking about it with the client and then traveling out there and so you end up with workers where yeah they find themselves in really uncomfortable situations
0: so if so if someone's listening to this podcast right now and they're thinking like they would like to become you know a striver you know maybe even a success story but probably it's more realistic they they want to become a striver like what would you say to them and what would you say, look, like these are the the, 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 after researching this a lot, here's a couple of the places where, you know, maybe you'd be better off. Uh, what advice would you give them? Uh,
1: uh, so my first bit of advice is to seek out a platform that is paying their workers as W-2 employees. So they'll have a much higher level of Protection in terms of the workplace, um, and they won't have to pay for the same types of expenses out of pocket. So they'd be paid for transportation between projects. They would have a much more dependable paycheck. Um, The periods of slow time wouldn't necessarily be sort of uh, taken on by the worker. Um, And then on top of that, I'd also say that workers should really think about what they are hoping to get out of this. You know, are you really looking for something where you can sort of have this as like a side hustle where you're making, you know, a certain amount of money to pay for a vacation or pay off a debt? Or are you looking to kind of move into a totally different field? And that should determine what you want to do more so than just, oh, hey, Uber had this advertisement. Let me do that. But I also tell workers a lot of times or I tell people a lot of times that you'd probably just be better off getting a part time job at a local shop in your in your community
0: and what would you say to the listener which is probably a higher there's probably a a bigger demographic here that before they take their next uber ride or before they use their next gig app like what would you tell them to think about before they call for the ride
1: Oh, that is such a good question. Um, so I would suggest that people think about if they really want to be contributing to this gig economy, if they really want to be contributing to the uh, exploitation of workers and what they can do to sort of fight that exploitation. You know, Instacart was just in the news um, because they were actually taking the tips that clients were giving to workers and they were putting those tips towards the, um, the actual rates that the uh, delivery drivers and shoppers were receiving. And one of the protests that came out was that people would just do a 22-cent tip and then they would give cash to the um, to the worker, and that can be often a better solution to ensure that the money goes to the right person and that can supplement their salary um, in a way that is much more beneficial.
0: Well this econ- this the gig and hustle economy is certainly probably not going away anytime soon, and this is a really great book to read. If you want a better understanding of it, because chances are, if you're listening to this, you're living in it. So thanks for writing the book and spending a little time talking about it with me.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something. And say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information. There. Thanks to Andrea for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Hustle and Gig. You won't regret it. And thanks to you again for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.